It's David Fincher's masterpiece. Yeah. I mean, it's it's everything that he does well encapsulated in a, a, a crisp 240-ish minutes, depending on which <laughs> version you're watching. And in an amazing way, and I, I don't know if this is why he was drawn to the material consciously or subconsciously, but it really struck me on this last viewing that it's such an ideal match of artist to material because so much, at least of the sort of the legend that's grown around him about his meticulousness and his orientation for detail and his sort of relentless pursuit of perfection, really. Yes. So much of that is both present in the narrative and present in the execution. Yes. And then also wonderfully subverted by the conclusion, by the fact that this is not a story that he can, that it's not a mystery he can solve, really. It's not an ending that is conclusive, really. Yes. Like, he does his best. Paul? What? I cover crime in Vallejo? Yeah, I cover crime in Vallejo. This one do that. I, I like I like puzzles. I do them a lot. And he gave himself a name. This is the Zodiac speaking. Several crime newsmen are wearing lapel buttons reading, I am not Paul Avery. Hey, bullet. Been a year and a half. You gonna catch this fucking guy or not? I'm not the Zodiac. And if I was, I certainly wouldn't tell you. So does anyone think the suspect warrants further investigation? Welcome to Zodiac Chronicle, a 24-part investigation into David Finch's 2007 genre-altering masterpiece, Zodiac. Adapted from Robert Graysmith's novel by screenwriter James Vanderbilt and starring Jake Gyllenhaal, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. I'm your host, Blake Howard. That introduction was the incredible writer, critic, and author with bylines at New York Times, the playlist Vulture, and the editor-in-chief of film publication Crooked Marquee, as well as the host of Fun City Cinema podcast, Jason Bailey. Joining me today as we enter the cityscape irrevocably shaped by the Zodiac, San Francisco, a filmmaker and screenwriter of Rounders, The Girlfriend Experience, Ocean's 13, and co-creator and showrunner of Billions, Brian Koppelman. I think that that's what Finch is saying, though, in some way here, is that, that these obsessions, that the things that are being valued and prioritized have the effect of dehumanizing uh, us and that you can't reason or think or calculate or expert your way out of it. Film critic at The Ringer and Cinemascope, author of essential movie books, The Coen Brothers, this book really ties the films together, and the recently released Paul Thomas Anderson masterworks, Adam Naiman. The, the thing I didn't get about it the first time, which is the, the depth of it, the bottomlessness of it, but that's the subject of the movie, which is how far down into a rabbit hole can you go, whether as a job or as an amateur practice? Pop culture critic and writer with bylines at Pajiba, the AV Club, Brightwall Darkroom, RogerEbert.com, Crooked Marquee and Slate, Roxana Haddadi. Like all you want to do is have some sort of individual satisfaction that you knew this because the system might never really know and it might never be able to convict him and he might go free. And returning is staff writer for Slash Film and host of the terrific 21st Century Spielberg podcast, Chris Evangelista. Just the way he shoots the newsroom in general, because he, 
I love that like almost every shot in the newsroom is like this lower angle pointing up because they went through all that goddamn trouble to make that drop ceiling. And they're like, we're gonna shoot it, God damn it. Like if we built this drop ceiling, we're gonna show it to you no matter what. This is our second episode, Sagittarius part two. And the theme is memories of murder. This is not directly an episode that will compare and contrast Bong Joon-ho's 2003 grueling hypnotic masterwork, Memories of Murder with Zodiac, nor will it really be the last time that fellow passengers on this show's journey will be discussing these films, Zodiac and Memories of Murder in parallel. Rather, it's that the opening scenes and the very makeup of Finch's entry into his hometown of San Francisco are refracted through his memory. All the lengths that the filmmakers take to render the verifiable killings and terror of the Zodiac with witness testimony and case files in this very specific time capsule image of San Francisco that we open this scene are two important and formative Fincher landmarks. The first is the now demolished Embarcadero Freeway. Well, these are the final days of the Embarcadero Freeway. At noon on Wednesday, the wrecking ball officially comes down on that controversial roadway. And with demolition comes new traffic nightmares. Channel 7's Janet Yee joins us live now to give us the specifics. Janet? San Francisco's Embarcadero Freeway was originally designed to connect the Bay Bridge and the Golden Gate Bridge, but it was never completed. In 1989, the Loma Prieta earthquake damaged it beyond repair, and eventually it was disassembled, as the beginning of that news clip points out. This shot is a recollection. It is David Fincher reaching back into his past to a formative experience, visiting the Hyatt Regency with his family, riding the elevators, being in the middle of San Francisco at its height. For Fincher, San Francisco is a cosmopolitan jewel at this moment. The Embarcadero Freeway, though, is a blemish, emblematic of something subterranean, shaking this town to its very core, something that in the wake of Zodiac will have to be dismantled. So while we discuss the introduction of the key characters and of this film and of Zodiac, let's dig back into the legacy of David Fincher with my friend Chris Evangelista. I also kind of think of this movie as like Fincher, like, I don't want to say like correcting something, but, you know, serial killer movies existed before Seven, but Seven sort of like gave birth to like that that serial killer movie boom like yeah like seven was like the sea change where it's like holy shit we need more movies like this and like everyone studios started green lighting all these these underlit killer films and seven is very you know it's a great movie it's got that great really tight screenplay but you know it, it sticks to a formula and it feels like fincher was like all right i gave you this this very fictional serial killer movie where you know they 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 get secret secret library reports from the from the the CIA or whatever and, and it's like now I'm gonna give you the complete opposite of that I I'm 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 sort of like making up for what I did like I I unleashed this the wave of of unrealistic serial killer movies on you <laughs> now I'm gonna make this 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 thing where it's, I'm just giving you how it would really play out like if you know seven is fiction this is reality this is how it actually plays out there's no you know, sometimes there's no closure. Sometimes there's no police solvent crack in the case. You know, and I, I always think of that as like those, those. You don't always get a detective Somerset. Right. Yeah. There's no like, yeah, like yeah, Mark Ruffalo's character. He's great, but he's not like, you know, this, 
He's like an, a regular guy. He eats animal crackers. He's got the wears a stupid bow tie. He's not like you know. He's, he's not like this this uh, Thoreau quoting genius that that Morgan Freeman is in Seven. And uh, I, that's everything who I love like, in this movie. Who has a casual familiarity with Dante, like just casual. Yes. I'm just yeah. Yeah, for all those all those Dante related crimes that <laughs> detectives work on. So <laughs> yeah, I just love that everyone in this movie is just a normal person. Like the main character, if you want to call Robert Graves with me, he's like the default main character. Really, like they're all sort of the main character. But yeah. you know, he's he's a cartoonist. He's like this nerdy cartoonist. He's there's nothing really like quote unquote special about no. him. And I just love that that's part of the what this movie is. It's about normal people dealing with abnormal circumstances. And sometimes that results in nothing it results in 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 the, the bad guy getting away and i i just think that's such an interesting idea in general to make a whole to make like a three-hour movie about that is <laughs> is is in some ways like insane like i kind of understand why publicists working on this movie were like i don't know about that because in some <laughs> ways they're right like yeah this isn't what people want in theory they want you know they want rollicking entertainment and they want a a climax that wraps everything up and this movie isn't doing that. And I don't know, I, I guess that's, it makes it an outlier. And that that's why one of the, you know, one of the 10 million reasons I, I love the movie so much. Hollywood has this problem where whenever they have something that is just like a sudden surprise hit, because David Fincher, you know, he's, he was coming off Alien 3, a movie that's just notoriously troubled. He's primarily at this time, you know, music video guy, no one knows who he is. And then, Seven comes along and it's like, holy shit, this is something new. And Hollywood, whenever that happens, they always learn the, the wrong lesson from that. They, instead of like, instead of like, all right, why did this work? They're immediately like, all right, let's just do that over again. Like, that, that worked, so let's just do it again. And you know, I have no knowledge if, if Zodiac is Fincher, like setting the record straight, but it does really feel like that, where it's like he saw Hollywood take the formula he he cracked with seven and and work it into just junk and he was like oh i have to <laughs> i have to do something about this because he's not a guy who repeats himself he's not like I, you know i'm gonna make the same kind of movie over so it's interesting to me that he makes two serial killer movies if seven is an expression of david finch's formal mastery zodiac is a reanimation of his digital memories in our previous episode sagittarius part one author jordan harper and i discussed at length Donovan's Hurdy Gurdy Man. Here, Adam Naiman and I discuss the lyrics of the song that opens Zodiac. I mean, I'm, a, I'm, I'm both drawn to and wary of lyrical annotations in movies where sometimes soundtracks can be too on the nose or sometimes yes. you're making too abstract a connection. But the first audible dialogue in Zodiac is how can people be so heartless? Yes. Which is the first line of Easy <laughs> to be Hard, the, the, the Three yes. Dog Night song. And in concert with the exploding fireworks, it's this like psycho-nationalist overture to this movie that's asking. <laughs> and in a way, coming as close to answering that question forensically and analytically as you can without really answering it. Because we're not talking about people, we're talking about a person. Yes. And we, we, we you know, we don't know. Before Three Dog Night, Big Brother and the Holding Company's all is Loneliness was the original track that was cut to the opening of the film. That was until David Fincher remembered. Sitting in his father's car as a young man on a summer evening, 
just awakening to the concept of Zodiac. What came on the radio? The song we hear that opens the film. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. And now, let's get to the scene. From the outset, there's a respect for the lives of the victims, the cops, the journalists. From a hard cut to black, one of David Fincher's favourite shots in the film, crime author James Elroy returns in his commentary track and says, This movie is driven by a slow-moving persistence, defined by unknowing and doubt. Speaking of the inherent horror of Zodiac, Elroy says that audiences often partake in horror as hyperbole. They want to believe that horrific things cannot happen to them. Zodiac says, however unlikely, it could happen to you and you're not going to have a physical or moral handle on it. So get used to it. As the credits begin to appear, they fade into Zodiac cipher. Here's Adam Naiman on the paranoia of San Francisco. Have any of your guests brought up the historically paranoid texture of San Francisco as a cinematic <laughs> No, not, not yet. I mean, yet. I, I mean, this is the city of vertigo, the city of experiment and terror. Yes. This is the Kaufman remake of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. Snatchers. And I mean, the game actually references all those movies I just mentioned. It references yes. Vertigo. It, meant it references Body Snatchers quite directly a couple mm. of times. And Zodiac has the big Body Snatchers reference with the Transamerica Pyramid because yeah. Kaufman kept shooting that in, in Body Snatchers. But like San Francisco as a backdrop, it's not like he invented it. I mean, when Basic Instinct is set in San Francisco, it's because Verhoeven's riffing on Vertigo. And Zodiac at San Francisco because it's San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> but it also means that you're watching Vertigo and Dirty Harry and Bullet and Body Snatchers while you're watching this film. And those are all movies, just greater or lesser degrees, as you say, where the city is very menacing. Yeah. You know, where the city is... It's scary because it's such a twisty city. It's yes. a city of twists and fog. And once you get there, there's nowhere else to go in the United States. Like that's as far <laughs> as you can get. After that, you're in uncharted waters. I mean, California has always been about extremity. That's why the counterculture went there. Yes. Because you, you can sleep under the sun. You can stay in a, in a park, you know? Yeah. And it's funny because a movie like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, I think about very different things than Zodiac's about. But it's also one of those movies that's like, this is a kind of a hinge point. And what materializes and manifests in hinge points, I mean, in Once Upon a Time, it suggests a movement, right? And mm. Zodiac's an individual. I mean, he doesn't inspire copycat killers. He maybe actually did. Yeah. Or copycat Zodiac. I mean, the, to me, the point of Zodiac is not that, well, now everyone's going to be a Zodiac. <laughs> no. But... But it's, it definitely suggests that this, something's kind of slouching towards Bethlehem here. Yeah. You know, something's been created in the seams of what's going on. And California is the, California is the place. I mean, San Francisco isn't Hollywood, and it's not. I mean, it's mm, not Los no, Angeles. No. But, you know, there are places where movies are made, you know. Yeah. 
there's something about heat in that sense too, where it's like, I love all the, the there's so much text in the city and heat. Like you can read the whole city cause there's yeah. just so much media. Yes. I mean, you know, Zodiac's a movie like that too, where everything's a commercial, everything's a logo, everything's a brand. That's the realism that Fincher practices, but you've got signs and symbols kind of everywhere. And again, to talk about the control in the movie, I mean, we've talked a bit, I don't think wrongly about this kind of ephemeral, airy-fairy metaphysics to the movie. I love the moment when you see the film strip and you see the Zodiac symbol exists on the film strip in the countdown. Yes. And that's not something that the Zodiac has carved. That's something that if he was involved with movies, if he was a projectionist or something, if that's there, he took it from that. But that triangulation, or not that triangulation, that focus of like the target on the film strip and a gun sight Yes. the Zodiac logo, because it's all about getting something in the crosshairs, looking at something, but also a very predatory thing. Yes. I mean, Fincher loves doing this. In, in Fight Club, you know, the, the dick gets spliced in at the end, and Benjamin Button's all about a, a clock that can run time backwards like a film strip. Yes. And in Zodiac, the Zodiac is literally encoded on the celluloid. Yes. In a, in a movie that's digital. Despite the fact that there aren't technically any kids in school in August, the filmmakers made the decision for Graysmith to take his eldest son to school here. We see this act of double life that obsessed people lead. There isn't a mutual exclusivity, obsession, and a regular type life. They can coexist in a delicate imbalance. In this moment, it's serene, adorable, and in the moments that Graysmith with his son, he plays the dad role with Verve. His final words may be an intergenerational plea. Learn a lot. There will be a test tonight. On the way to work, Graysmith is doodling behind the wheel. Every stop in the flow of traffic is an opportunity for one frantic alteration to a piece that he's about to submit, or an emerging idea for a future submission. We see the book drop casually beside Graysmith in the car. This is a moment that should be submitted into evidence of Fincher's obsession. In the supplementing materials for the movie, you see something like 20 or 30 takes of Jake Gyllenhaal tossing the book and Fincher watching it land. When it doesn't happen precisely the way that he's imagined it and it's within his span of control, he cannot allow himself to feel relief or satisfaction until the job is done. In around a second of the movie's runtime, it is so loaded with a taste for the particular and for the taste of specificity. Here's me talking to Brian Koppelman, screenwriter, showrunner, co-creator of Billions, about exactly what draws us to that specificity again and again. Like a year and a half ago, I think it was, before the pandemic, I was in my apartment. Maybe now it's like two years ago, time is so strange. But I watched the movie three days in a row and then watched the special features, the the hour long doc um, where Fincher talks about how he does stuff. Then I watched the movie again. And you know, I had, the first time I saw the film, um, David and I were working with Steven Soderbergh, who's, very close with David Fincher and, but it was, um, it was Steven Soderbergh, the two of us, Edward Norton, and I think Danny DeVito. Uh, so David Levine, Steven Soderbergh, David Fincher, Edward Norton, Danny DeVito. I think that's all the people and Fincher screened it for us, uh, about, three months before it was released and it was not quite finished. And I knew nothing about the movie at that time, you know? And so I had that experience of seeing it there, the way that he'd planned on putting it out, this intermission and stuff. And then, um, 
And then I hadn't really watched it maybe one other time until yeah, once, once or twice over the years and then obsessively a couple of years ago, you know, and it grows and grows in stature for me, the further away from that moment in time that it came out. It is, it's uncompromising perfectionism uh, is just incredibly inspiring to me. And of course, you know, what's also amazing when you watch the film is that Fincher himself is, has this tremendous amount of expertise and competence and confidence. And so you're watching a guy sort of telling stories about people like him uh, and, uh, and the dangers of believing in your own myth. Everybody in uh, Zodiac self-mythologizes. Even, um, even Gyllenhaal's character, Graysmith, and it's like each time somebody in that movie decides that they know something, <laughs> they are at the moment, they're about to be kind of relieved of their sanity and their ability to move forward. And, and I think part of why there's so much control in the film, there's always incredible control in the filmmaking with Pitch, right? But there are times in, in this where the camera is just staying in a place and the camera has such sturdiness and certainty. And the camera is as confident as these brilliant and brilliantly wrong people in front of it. <laughs> and I think that's incredibly intentional. It's like, I'm putting this camera here and I'm doing everything you do in, the, in, in a cops and robbers movie where we would see that Joe Friday has the answer, uh, where we would see that Al Pacino has the answer. <laughs> but here, when they, they, they don't have the answer. And so when we talked before and you said you wanted me to do an exegesis on a scene similar to the one I did on the rewatchables about Godfather 2 and the scene in Havana, that's a movie. The Godfather 2 is a movie about misconceptions and confusion being wiped away and, 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 and um, uh, Michael is prosecuting a case in his mind with such incredible discipline and at the willingness of losing his own soul for the answer that the whole movie is like a windshield that is dirty from the road, but this guy keeps wiping it off and wiping it off and wiping it off until he can see clearly. What you're left with there is clarity. The mm -hmm. Godfather part two may confuse people, but ultimately what the Godfather part two is about in many ways is if you're willing to sacrifice everything, the truth is knowable. Uh, whereas- but then, but then you have to, just like Michael does, then you have to sit in it. You have yes. to sit in the crisp clarity and you have to let that clarity wash over you because you're now in a fucking aquarium of this clarity that is and yeah. and that is and that is what is crippling for fans of that movie like you and i as you get to that moment and your whole soul is just vibrating because you can't handle the fact that he's done this to himself and then and that we keep making him do it to himself on every watch that we do of that movie yes and 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 and, and the full complete knowledge knowledge of all his family's crimes knowledge of his wife's crimes Knowledge, but knowledge primarily of his own crimes against humanity, against all his 
core beliefs <laughs> and his own soul, right? So in the end, but this movie, so to contrast it, the, the, the challenge here is we are, this is a movie about the Merc, right? The San Francisco fog, this is a movie about, even on the crispest, coolest, clearest night in San Francisco, the cops are going to, I mean, it's an amazing exchange, right? When they go, but we were looking for, this is the word they use, a Negro. And Ruffalo says twice, three times, and I think, but, but it was changed. They, they changed it because he's trying to put this kind of rational logic on an essentially irrational thing. Yeah. That doesn't matter. They changed it too late. These guys weren't competent. They missed it. Nothing in the only person with clarity in Zodiac is the Zodiac. And we never know for sure. <laughs> and so uh, this is a harder scene by scene. All the scenes are kind of about the same thing. Mm -hmm. They are about somebody believing they know Michael Corleone starts out not knowing. He starts out having an idea, mm. but he doesn't know. And everything he does, he comes at stuff, not from a place of humility and maybe the way we would normally think about it, but from a place of humility of, uh, there's a conspiracy here against me. I have some suspects. If I act too soon, I might punish the wrong person and expose myself and end up killed and ruin everything. So I have to actually, I mean, that's what's behind keep your friends close, keep your enemies close, right? I yeah. have to actually subjugate my ego, prostrate myself to Meyer Lansky, uh, you know, Hyman Roth, yeah. uh, in order to unearth the truth. But here, everybody's a big swinging dick. Everybody, even the you know every the editor in chief saying, "Don't you have somewhere to be?" over and over to Gray Smith, uh, you know, um, uh, the L word that uh, uh, Downey is, says to him, a and then Gray Smith himself becoming the guy who supposedly who who thinks he has all the answers and, and goes goes nuts chasing them, and so I love these scenes of, as I say, quote unquote expertise that masquerade as core competence. And that really talk about the American male in the 20th century who uh, believes either he has the answers or if he just asks a few questions and uses the power of his personality, he's going to get the uh, answers. Because the flip side, that life may, may remain mysterious, that uh, death can come at any time, is just too fucking painful for them to grapple with to deal with. And so, you know, at the moment when maybe Graysmith uh, and Paul could make progress, instead they get hammered on blue drinks, right? <laughs> uh, and can barely stand. Uh, and so, I mean, that's another scene that's just um, incredible. And, and so, so for me, the formalism of the picture, the confidence and swagger of the camera, the confidence and swagger of the players, uh, even, you know, R Ruffalo's character, even Anthony uh, Edwards, uh, even Elias Coteus, uh, even Donna Logue, like every single person believes that they have a piece of truth nobody else does. They have a piece of expertise that nobody else does, that 
they're the fucking best at what they do. It's all <laughs> like cock of the walk stuff. Everybody there would tell you they're the best at the thing that they do. You know, obviously the women in the picture are different. Uh, the yeah. women in the picture are trying to, when they can get a word in, are trying to remind people uh, that there's, there are other human things worth living for. There are better questions to be asking. There are, uh, there's physical intimacy to be had, but these men can't let their shoulders. I mean, look at the way they all walk. You know, look at the way they all carry. I mean, look at the way Downey carries himself, and then the way Jake starts to carry himself throughout, and Ruffalo, and Anthony Edwards, and Cateus. And um, it is a very specific kind of post-military masculine. Um, American exceptionalism on display that, of course, by the end of the movie proves to be completely empty. And this is obviously a theme to which Fincher's returned, but I think it's never, and, and was at before, but I think it's never been as clearly laid out because in Seven, obviously Seven's about this too in some ways, but the comeuppance in Seven is so direct that it, I, for me, the, it's not as elegant as the answer in, in this movie. We arrive at the exterior of the Chronicle, a terrific Mac painting, and the lobby changed to feel like the time life building in the foyer where Finch had visited with his father. We then begin a choreographed dance between Graysmith and the letter making its way through the bowels of the Chronicle. It's a straightforward but extremely effective passage. The letter from the mail truck into the hands of the editor. There is so much at stake in period films. They often look so forced. But Fincher and the entire team create an effortless experience. You begin to appreciate the high quality production that this renders the three-dimensional space like one of those weird Google Maps cars that you occasionally encounter in your neighborhood. The dance of Graysmith in the elevator, past Paul Avery holding court. He's in autopilot from the elevator to his desk. It's like those times you've driven home from work deep in thought and you literally do not know how your body has made the journey, how you've been able to make those tactile maneuvers in order to operate the vehicle because you're so gone. Graysmith is like that in this moment. His mind and his senses are reaching out to Avery and the crew, too shy to actively try and penetrate that circle. Rather, he walks and masks his strain as he's listening. Here's Adam Naiman again on Finch's textural authenticity. Directorially, what Fincher is always good at, but rarely, uh, he, he got, how can I say it? He's always been good at textural authenticity where it's mm. like, that's what someone would wear. Yeah. You know, he's always good at that. But I think in his period pieces in, in Zodiac, in a different way in Benjamin Button, and then in a really hyper way in the social network, because there's less history behind it. It's a newer period piece. Yes. He creates such an incredible baseline of authenticity, not factual, this is what happened, or this is what people said, because the movie is filled with all kinds of fab fabulations, right? Yes. I mean, it's not <laughs> true. It's, 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 it's dramatic license. It's poetic license. We're about to see something rendered in this docudrama that has happened so few times in history up to this point where a figure terrorizing the public via the media emerges into existence. The first time it reverberated so hard in pop culture was Jack the Ripper. Now, handing the baton to Zodiac, 
We're on a knife's edge. After Zodiac, we're officially in the age of the serial killer. We're in a new season of fascination right now in 2020. <laughs> the deaths in Zodiac's legacy almost pale in comparison to his modus operandi. It's his correspondence that fascinates the filmmakers and audiences alike. Editorial in two. The music aptly crescendos once it hits the hand of Carol, secretary to the editor. The letter is a baton, like a microphone at a school production. The lighting follows the possessor. Evidence has gravity, and investigating officers are like astronomers. In so many ways, they're looking to see how the gaps in the space of their case register some gravitational cues and clues. Here's Roxana Haddadi and I discussing all the ways that Zodiac makes us feel uneasy about this investigation in the hands of the systems that are meant to protect us. First of all, I still think that it is Fincher's masterwork. And yes. I love a lot of Fincher. I mean, Seven is great. Fight Club has a very strong over hold over my heart now still. Gone Girl is amazing. But I think Zodiac has this specific kind of mystique that he hasn't been able to recreate in his other films. And I don't even know if he's trying to. Mm. Like, I don't even think that he's trying to bring that same vibe into his other work. But Zodiac just has so much atmosphere and it has such a sense of people trying to defeat almost like this karmic evil that you can't even understand. (laughs) And I think that, and I think that the opening of this movie does that so well because it almost lulls you into believing, well, nothing could go wrong in this corner of suburban America. Yeah. Right? Like beautiful community in California. Everyone is mostly white and mostly happy and bad things happen, right? But they happen in other places. There's very much this sense of communal calm that opens Zodiac. And then like the deliberateness with which Fincher introduces us to this insane amount of violence is so jarring and it's literally like I feel like Fincher is like taking a Norman Rockwell painting and just like splattering a bunch of blood on it like you know he's like, like, he's like hey you, like, you know those lovely kids from American Graffiti and Days and Confused what happens if we killed them all right. <laughs> yeah that yeah. is it yeah you know he's like he's like remember Coppola's The Outsiders and how you wanted them all to be okay I'm just going to murder them. Like, that's what I'm going to do. And so I think very much he does a very good job. And we talk about this all the time with like the 60s and the 70s. And just as time periods, when did the innocence quote unquote end? And then you sort of spiral into that conversation about how like, well, America was never really innocent. If you go back to the 60s and the 70s, the civil rights movements were still happening. The women's rights movements were still happening. The gay rights movements were still happening and nothing was perfect, right? But even like growing up in that time period, and I think you feel it from Fincher, there was just like a halcyon nostalgia for what was. Mm. And Fincher destroys that so quickly. (laughs) Yeah so efficiently and then i think the rest of zodiac feels like you're chasing the person who did that Mm. but every mistake you make is just 
an indication of like the humanity you might have that that person does not. Mm. And I think that there is a ton of stuff like Zodiac does such a good job in terms of showing how like our fallacies are built into the system, like the police that don't talk to each other Mm. and like the databases that don't interface with each other and all that stuff that is bureaucratically wrong. But I also think the movie does a good job of making clear that like most people can't comprehend somebody being capable of doing something like this. Yeah. And so I think that is what always ties Seven and Zodiac together for me, because Seven also walks that line with Brad Pitt's character just not even understanding who this guy is, Mm. right? Like, how does your mind even work in that way? And so you have Brad Pitt consistently thinking like, well, this guy's crazy. Like, he just came up with the stuff because he's insane. And then you have Morgan Freeman's character being like, but there's something happening here that isn't insane, right? Like, this is like a very studied and very deliberate. And he took time to figure out how to do this. And Zodiac to me is exactly the same way where it's like, it's very easy, I think, to brush off these horrendous acts of violence as like an unstable mind. But I think what's scarier is like, so much intention goes into that. And that takes a level of like, planning and understanding of how people work, and thinking through your actions that to the rest of us just seems very unfathomable. And then you have these people who are like cops, journalists, detectives, these people who think that they also have some kind of power by being part of like these trusted institutions. They're the voice of authority. They're going to solve the crime. They're going to figure out who the Zodiac killer is. And they also think that they have a certain amount of power, but ultimately do they, you know, like (laughs) I think that they, I think that the movie does a very good job making you wonder like, what is the point of an institution that can't figure out any of this? And what is the point of an institution that in some of these scenes doesn't even know how to get out of its own fucking way? Yeah. And I think that Fincher, I don't know how many of Fincher's other movies are really about this, but in a lot of ways, Zodiac reminds me of like a Soderbergh movie. Because mm. Soderbergh is so interested in like how our institutions fail us and what one individual voice can do to change that. Mm. Like you have like Aaron Brockovich and you have all the police and the agents in traffic. And then you have High Flying Bird and you have Che. Like Soderbergh is very interested in the power of like individual dedication to fighting injustice. And I think that his movies have some sort of hope in the sense that maybe you can change the system from the inside and take it over and make it something more effective. Whereas I don't think Fincher entertains that idea. You know, like I think that he, I think that he is interested in finding the atmosphere of that time Mm. and 
in recreating some of the innocence of that time. And I also think he's interested in telling you that that is all fucking gone now <laughs> and you can't, you can't get it back. So it's interesting to see so many of our like auteurs do that because I also think Tarantino was playing with a similar idea in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood right? Like, let's yeah. recreate this time period that seemed very beautiful from the outside, but was already undergoing a sort of decay. Yes. And I think Zodiac is all about that decay. And like, how far does it go? What you really nailed in Soderberg is his sense of positive disruption. He's like people who are in who, who sort of for whatever reason, sometimes they can be outsiders like Aaron, but other times they are deeply ingrained in the system and start to see how that they can be a positive disruptor for, or, or just a, like a positive agent for change. And so, so similarly, Fincher goes, okay, well, I'm going to experiment with that, but I'm going to go with someone who disrupts how a city can work, like how, how a single disruptive element who has this. And let's be clear. I think what is, you talked about mystique right at the beginning of our chat. The mystique of Zodiac is that very element that he, the mystique of him is that he's got such wisdom and insight in this really backward way of going, this is how I can derail how a city works. If I go to different media outlets, then jurisdictionally people are going to be fighting. I'm going to do kills that are potentially on jurisdictional lines that make it harder for them to investigate me. I'm going to have a pattern and then completely break the pattern. I'm going to send letters with more stamps than they require. So that's harder for me to trace. I'm going to, you know, if you read the Graysmith book, they posit that he uses like an overhead projector with an alphabet and traces the letters. So there's a consistency that can't be replicated with handwriting. And so I think that that's a great, there's a great kinship there of like, Oh, look, Soderbergh's mind goes to positive disruption when he is influenced by all the president's men. And then Finch's is like, Oh no, let's, ha let's tear the whole thing down. Let's just, let's show this decay for what it really is. Mm -hmm. And I think, I mean, I don't think either of us has said, we've said terror, but the reality is that the Zodiac Killer was a terrorist, yeah, right? And true. we've certainly seen tons of that. I mean, when I, I was in middle school and there were um, the snipers who were like in our county and in Maryland. And I distinctly mm. remember like taking the school bus to school and having to go through these drills of like, okay, God forbid something would happen, but like drop to the floor of the bus like we're gonna try to figure out a way to God. you know deal with this and like that was terrifying but it's also very scary how quickly those things become normal because I remember how quickly we adapted to that and we're all also seeing that now with like corona like we've all adapted <laughs> to a certain lifestyle as yeah. a way of dealing with it and so I think what Zodiac does well is like yes certainly some people adapted to like oh there's just a serial killer who was just operating in our city but like you said fundamentally he changed something about people and how we trust each other or don't yeah. and how we believe in each other or don't and i think the movie does a very good job following these characters who at first are sort of hopeful that they can figure this out and then eventually as it takes longer and longer there's just a realization that maybe you never can and maybe you got outsmarted by somebody whose agenda of confusion and terror and fear 
has more power than your agenda of law and order. And I think that's so unsettling. Yeah. And yet Zodiac as a movie does it so slowly that I don't even think you realize it's happening until later in the film when you have like Jake Gyllenhaal in that basement thinking <laughs> to himself, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> you know, how did this happen? <laughs> But in the beginning, it's so incremental. Like you have these beautiful homes and these very nice cars and these happy teenagers. And then it's just like, he has no, he has no skin in that game. He has no interest in that kind of life. And it's just something for him to destroy. And Fincher doesn't waste his time showing us that destruction. Editorial in two. As we approach the editorial meeting, Graysmith submits his work. Avery, the inimitable Robert Downey Jr., enters with swagger and style and shitbag charm to boot. Regaling the married cohort of editors with tales of fondue parties and loose women, 1969 attitudes towards sex and love in snapshot. Janice in date book left the fondue party before everyone got naked. That's a crime. <laughs> Carol pulls over the letter and marches right into the meeting. You need to see this. Cut to a topographical view of the letter. The first iconic Zodiac letter. That instantly recognizable handwriting, the strange misspellings. The camera scrolls as we hear it being read to the table. The editor won't read it aloud. He says to get the publisher. He recognises the magnitude of the moment. In the moment. Such a rare thing. When you frame this against the cinematic example and the enduring archetype of the Robards Bradley character, you can totally understand that a great editor would know that this is serious, particularly if the killer is actually telling the truth. Go get the publisher. Dear editor... This is the murderer of the two teenagers last Christmas at Lake Herman and the girl on the 4th of July near the golf course in Vallejo. To prove I killed them, I shall state some facts which only I and the police know. Christmas, brand name of ammo, Super X. Ten shots were fired. The boy was on his back with his feet to the car. The girl... Publisher Charles Theria, played by John Terry, chokes up at this moment. He cannot even outline what this killer has done. Editor of the Chronicle, Templeton Peck, played by John Getz, has a grit, has a sleaze, has the mileage of an editor who's seen it all. The girl was on her right side, feet to the west. Fourth of July. One girl was wearing patterned slacks. The boy was also shot in the knee. Brand name of ammo was Western. Here is part of a cipher. And just like that, a legend is born. The other two parts of this cipher are being mailed to the editors of the Vallejo Times and SF Examiner. I want you to print this cipher on the front page of your paper. In this cipher is my identity. If you do not print this cipher by the afternoon of Fry, F-R-Y, 1st of Aug 69, I will go on a 
kill rampage fry night. I will cruise around all weekend killing lone people in the night, then move on to kill again until I end up with a dozen people over the weekend. It's unsigned except for a symbol. Is it me? Does that look like a gun sign? Danny Jr.'s posture is so divine in this scene, and it's also a magnificent point in his career. He's beginning an ascent back to the mainstream. Recovery has looked good on him, and he's about to adopt the armor that would shift the paradigm of the mainstream blockbuster. The MCU Avengers movies are going to rely on his ability to not only lead, but play an eye-catching supporting performer as he's doing in Zodiac. The posture, the affectation of Paul's style, the ability to feign lazy and casual when in fact he's able to immediately shift gears into that extremely capable and assured crime beat journalist that will form an integral part of the story to come. Today's August 1st. He wants his code in the afternoon edition. If the examiner doesn't have the balls to run it, we scoop the bag. Now this man is talking about shooting 12 people. And not running this might make him do that. If we run it, we might be setting a very dangerous precedent. Oh, come on now. It's newsworthy. We're giving some sick bastard a soapbox. What does that say to people? Back up. The paradigms are beginning to shift before our very eyes. There's a reason in the fifth season of The Wire that McNulty and co. use evidence tampering to fabricate a killer in Baltimore. The public interest demands a budget, a resolution. The media benefits as the story progresses. There's a mutually assured emphasis on the importance of each societal mechanism when you're faced with this kind of crime. Is this Vallejo story true? Do we know that? Paul? What? I cover crime in Vallejo? Yeah, I cover crime in Vallejo. Ten minutes. Let's shoot the code and call SFPD. If it turns out to be real, at least we'll have the material. All right. Ray Smith, don't you have a cartoon to finish? Oh, yeah. Hi, this is Paul Avery from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'm looking for someone to shed some light on a letter we received. We're introduced to another one of the incredible talents in this extensive supporting cast, Elias Kataeus, who while on the phone with Avery validates that he's now the second person who had reached out to police who received the letter. Thank you. Sergeant Mullenix. Sergeant Paul Avery from the San Francisco Chronicle. I just want to check if you had an unsolved firearm-related homicide on Christmas and maybe one on July 4th. You guys got one too. And when he returns, he's got an air of disbelief and incredulity that the author of this letter is not lying about these details. Confirmed. BPD, they confirmed the shootings. Hal's on the phone of the examiner. They got the same letter with a different coast of the Times Herald. Christmas, two teenagers on Lover's Lane, both the OA, David Faraday and Betty Jensen. July 4th, Darlene Farron and Michael Mag... I think it's Mayhew. Anyway, he lived. She didn't. The murder weapons? Ballistics. Everything he said in the letters matched. I mean, I think the... Times Herald's going to go with it. The examiner's going, but won't go front page. I say, let's go front page. If he kills 12 people, it's not our fault. Without a second's hesitation, an editor confirms that the other papers are also going to run with the story. But in the other case, it's not going to place it on the front page of the paper. It's not yet the most important story in the city and in North America. Earlier in the episode, I talked to Brian Koppelman about the surreal experience of seeing Zodiac for the first time. Three months before theatrical audiences had a chance to, with David Levine, Steven Soderbergh, David Fincher, Danny DeVito and Edward Norton. And what happened at the end? What was the sense in the room right then when he's like presenting you guys with this thing? Like was, was the feeling in the room like, holy shit. Yeah, Blake, when that movie ended. Well, I will say I never play any of this stuff cool. <laughs> I made a decision when I got into making movies and television that I would never 
allow myself to lose the part of myself that was a huge fan yeah. of greatness. And so I was very aware that I was sitting with David Fincher, who I didn't know well. I'd met him a few times. We knew each other a little bit, but we weren't, we're not friends. We weren't friends. Yeah. So, but he was a hero, creative hero. Um, I was close with Stephen and Edward, but it was still like an amazing thing to be in, included in that world and in some rough way, be invited as a peer, not that I'm a peer of David Fincher's, but you know, to be invited yes. as a peer. And so, but I'd been, I'd say David and I had been in a ton of screenings by then. Um, this is probably 10 years into our career. So I'd certainly been in a lot of stuff. And sometimes the stuff, you know, you're gonna watch something and it's not gonna work. Like I remember seeing an early cut of Green Mile in a similar situation. And I loved Shawshank so much. And the cut of Green Mile didn't really work very well. It's not, it, it, it didn't resemble, the, the, the final movie's much better than what we saw. Mm. But for whatever reason, Green Mile didn't work on me. And I had to, as a professional, when I was asked stuff by Frank or whatever, mm. I had to be like, well, if you're asking and you still work on the movie, you know, there were a couple of things that I, whatever. Zodiac though, that movie finishes and David Fincher looks it up. And all you can basically say is nothing. I mean, you just <laughs> can't even speak. <laughs> you can just say bravo, really. You can just say thank you, you know, because there's nothing I could, there's nothing I could offer him uh, in that moment other than thank you for letting us see this movie. Uh, and it does fuck you up too. I mean, it, it's a day ruiner. You know, you're, <laughs> you're walking out of there feeling like um, you just have a heaviness about you for days. I mean, that movie does leave you with, you're left with a heaviness for days. Mm. And it's a testament to the movie that makes you feel that bad that you just want to watch it again and again and again. And Betty Jensen, July 4th, Darlene Farron and Michael Mag I think it's Mayhew. Anyway, he lived. She didn't. The murder weapons? Ballistics. Everything he said in the letters match. I mean, I think the Times Herald's going to go on it. The examiner's going, but won't go front page. I say, let's go front page. If he kills 12 people, it's not our fault. In Andrew Saris's directors and directions, 1929 to 1968, he talked about John Ford mastering his style to the point he could embroider it with those pauses and contemplations that express feelings. The final product in the film differed from an elaborately staged shot that didn't work in the edit. They reshot this sequence with a more conventional shot, reverse shot, and went around the room, acknowledging the editorial team members, and took dramatic license to ensure that Avery and Graysmith are in the room. In the faces of the men around the table, they're plagued by the concept that a delusional psychopath wants to communicate with the press. This psycho wants to talk through the media, and the exuberant confidence in Robert Downey Jr.'s Paul Avery and the extraordinary hubris already signals that no matter the consequences, someone in the media will talk back. Be sure to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know about all the upcoming episodes. If you can't get enough, Unplug Zodiac Sessions will be available exclusively on the One Heat Minute Patreon, linked in our show notes. This episode of Zodiac Chronicle was researched, written, and presented by me, Blake Howard. The music of Zodiac Chronicle is composed, produced, and performed by Chris Duffy of Los Espinas. Our companion I Am Not Avery Zodiac Chronicle stickers were done by the talented Amy Reed. You can find it on Instagram at, at ai.me.me or via email at amy.reed0310 at gmail.com. Until next time, goodbye.